Welcome to Follow the Science. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg opinion columnist, and this podcast grew out of a fellowship from the Society for Professional Journalists. This week, we're at a sort of a COVID intermission. Cases are down, the news is focused on the war in Ukraine, and even though the pandemic isn't over, doctors and scientists are having a sort of moment of reckoning talking about what they did wrong or what others did wrong or which mistakes were made. And one of the mistakes that I've seen among scientists and doctors is overconfidence, especially overconfidence in mitigation measures that they thought would work and especially in predictions about how the pandemic would end. I've had a couple of experts on this podcast who thought that vaccines might end the pandemic, and unfortunately, they turned out to be wrong. Today's guest has been right all along, and that may have something to do with the fact that he's been studying pandemic and epidemic infectious diseases for decades. He's also been consistently pessimistic, even suggesting in those happy early days of the vaccinated summer of 2021 that the darkest days of the pandemic might be ahead of us. His name is Michael Osterholm. He's director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy out of the University of Minnesota. And even though he's pessimistic, he's not a scaremonger. He's not gloomy. He's just very skeptical. I started our conversation by complimenting him on his own podcast. I want to say I love your podcast. It is there's something really wonderful about it, which is that the tone is so free of blame and shame and all the things that I feel like we've yeah. had too much of in this pandemic. Yeah. Well, thank you. You know, I just just try to tell it like I would tell it to my hometown Iowa folks, you know, that's all I do. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, so many uh, optimistic parts, but also, you know, important warnings for people. I actually, that it, it made me think of a question I wanted to ask you, which is whether sure. there, there is too much of a sort of a culture of blame. Some of it may be around the mask mandates that we've sort of, people actually believed that the, the COVID would go away if everybody wore a mask. Yeah, and so they tended yeah. to point the finger and blame people that forgot to wear one or went to a store. Yeah. Boy, Faye, I wish I could tell you. I mean, I, I, I think that this has been one of the very humbling parts for me is not just trying to understand what the virus is going to do and how it's going to do it, but human behavior. I mean, I, I had a, a, a Civil War historian, notable one, so, several months ago say to me in a conversation that for the first time, he finally understood what it would have been like to have families send half their sons to fight for the North and half to the South. Families are so divided, you know, yeah. and it's just it's just so difficult. Why? You know, what is it about? What is this? You know, yeah. and so, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting culture uh, situation, you know, it is. And, and it seems like in some way the media have sort of fanned the flames. Um, <laughs> It, it, partly by and social media by dividing people over this and just the visibility of masks and the kind of yeah. almost magical uh thinking that they would end the pandemic which was yeah well you know that's an area where you know i i first published back in april of 2020 you know the challenge of what would be adequate respiratory protection you know i was always very supportive of respiratory protection but you know realized early on that this was an aerosol transmitted virus you know, to say that a face cloth covering or, you know, a cloth mask would protect you is, is you know, just not based on any science. And I tell you, it really came home here in the Minnesota last summer 
when we were inundated with all the smoke from the Western forest fires, and there were days that was hazy here, you couldn't see a block away. And people kept commenting about it. They were suffocating in their cloth masks because it was so full of smoke. You know, smoke is an aerosol. You know, it's just like a perfume. And so if you were smelling that smoke through whatever you were wearing, you know you had lots of leakage. And as infectious as this virus is, particularly with Omicron, you know, it was like saying I'm going to wear my most comfortable pair of of swim goggles because they're so comfortable that they leak like hell. Well, what's that, you know? <laughs> well, you know, and that gets to something that CDC said. I, I want to talk about sort of what we should do going forward, and um, some, you know, some of our uh, what Biden wants to do. But also, uh, I saw that CDC is saying, you know, if you're sick or have symptoms, if you have symptoms or you test positive for COVID or you're in a high risk area, you should continue to wear a mask. And I thought, well, should shouldn't people maybe either wear an N95 or stay home? Is that? Yeah, is that yeah, no, and see, that's, you know, I, I do have a real challenge with CDC on this issue. You know, they they were very late in coming to the conclusion that aerosols were an important part of transmission. And that's been unfortunate because that really held us back in a lot of the hygiene theater they got done, you know, all the billions of dollars spent on plexiglass and so forth, which were totally unnecessary, kind of came out of that respiratory droplet mindset. But then in addition, you know, there have been a series of studies published, and we have on our website two commentaries that really go into the whole quote of respiratory protection, masking, etc. And one of the commentaries is really devoted to just looking at the other studies that have been done. And they are so poorly done. The The, the amount of bias and confounding and all these issues that would make them in, you know, uh, almost uninterpretable, but have been used by groups like the CDC. They publish these things. There are several of the recent MWR pieces were really, really uh, scientifically unsound. And they've continued to work on finding things that support you don't need N95s, which to me is, is really undercut science, not supports it. And and so to me, I think that's been a challenge because the public's been so confused about what do we need? You know, what is it that we need? And would anybody say that if you are walking into a uh, uh, an environment with poisonous gas, would you willingly accept a face cloth covering or a, uh, you know, uh, yeah. basically, a, you know, something like that? And you wouldn't. And and yet with a virus like this, we do. So that's that's been one of the challenges. The CDC has never clarified, even with this recommendation they put out just now, they say, wear what's ever comfortable that you'll wear. Right. So are they poorly done because these are observational studies that are being interpreted more as randomized? Yeah, well, that's, that's part of it. Part of it, though, is the fact that how you even measure what you're looking at, like the Bangladesh study on face cloth coverings was just I mean, if one of my graduate students had done that study, I would have flunked him. Was it and, because of too many confounding variables? Oh, yes. I mean, it was a whole set of different things. Measurement issues, bias, confounding, um, you know, uh, unable to really determine who did or didn't have infection. Uh, you know, it, and so, you know, it's, it's that same old thing. If somebody's going to wear an N95 all day, there's a lot of other things they do. They're probably more likely to be fully vaccinated with, you know, that extra dose, etc. So there's there's this kinds of, of issues like that, that you have to look at the study design. You can say, well, I can't change that. Well, then you would do the analysis to look at, well, if it's, if, let's look at this analysis, look at that. And those just have never been done. 
The group that had the big influence on our mask policy was called Mask for All. That group had really turned the tide back in April of 2020 with a model that suggested that the pandemic could be controlled if everyone wore a cloth or surgical mask. But it rested on an assumption that those masks would work extremely well in blocking infection. So what was the concern about the masks for all stuff? I guess it was a model. It was very influential. That was all based on... I mean, they had no understanding of at all of aerosols, et cetera. And it was just, you know, it was a model that was created that basically started out with the premise that these masks work. And that was the challenge right from the start. We actually talked about that in the pot or in the, yes. in the I think it's in that commentary. One of the, the, the rationales that a lot of people in the media gave for giving all these studies a pass was, well, it can't hurt. It can't hurt. And I, and I wonder that's whether not that's true. Really- Okay. No, that's not true. They can hurt. They do hurt. Because people who think they're taking steps to protect themselves who are not, I mean, we put them at harm's way. I mean, a good example also is just if you look right now, we've been doing a study where we freeze news media frames on TV. So we'll take outdoor and indoor just randomly and then we'll count the people. And we've done this over time who are wearing any kind of face cloth covering, mask, et cetera. We try to ascertain what kind. Very, very few everywhere in 95s. But one of the other things we look at is how many wear them under their nose. And consistently since the beginning of the pandemic, 25 to 27% wear them under their nose all the time. Well, that's like fixing three <laughs> of the five screen doors in your submarine, you know? So- what good is that? Yeah. And so I guess that's sort of where where we get to our current recommendations that it, that the assumption that they protect others is sort of built into the idea that if you test positive, you should just put on any kind of mask and go out in the world and that should be fine. One of the other pieces of foundational evidence for universal masking, one that I heard over and over from experts, was the nearly perfect record in healthcare settings for avoiding transmission. But it turns out, according to more recent analysis, that there actually was a lot of transmission in healthcare settings. You know where I think this really has come home to roost? Uh, First of all, I mean, this has been reported time and time and time again, where people of N95s on will go to a hospital. I mean, we've had our own staff have this happen, where when they come in the door, they're told they have to take off their N95 because they have to use a surgical mask. Okay, because that's what they do in the hospital. And you say, well, no, this is better. No, I'm sorry, I can't let you in until you have, okay. So then what they do is they put the surgical mask over the N95 often. But the point being is if you look at the data and there was a story done on this, um, was it, I think maybe it was uh, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, in which they looked at the number of cases in healthcare facilities, hospitals, specifically over the course of several weeks in January. And what they looked at was the amount of transmission that occurred to patients in-house. These were patients that were negative on admission in for another reason, and they were there at least seven days. So that there's no way that their infection came in with them. And then on top of it, when they looked at, at the different hospitals, many of them had no visitor policies at the time because of Omicron. Mm-hmm. So the only way they could get infected was another patient or a worker. Well, many of these people were not in for COVID. They were in totally different wards. 
Oh, okay. I, this was in the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, I remember. I think it was. That. I think yeah. it was. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the bottom line is, is that it just showed how much transmission occurred in healthcare settings from healthcare workers. And if you look at it more carefully, look how many of those hospitals has a policy, surgical masks for protection. So, you know, we're worried about them getting it, the healthcare workers, but also them transmitting it. Right. And, you know, those should be wake up data to say, how the hell do these patients, if, if their risk of getting infected is no different than being in the community versus in our hospital, what's wrong with our infection control? How did the the CDC, I mean, what, do you think that there, there were political reasons that CDC no. uh, went this? I think, it's, I think it's culture. It's scientific culture. The same thing was true at WHO. You know, it, it, it was longstanding. And, and, you know, I'm not an aerobiologist. You know, Don Milton and Lisa Brousseau and these people are. I'm not. Um, but I hang around them a lot. And it's very interesting because they have had this ongoing frustrating fight over aerosol versus respiratory droplets for a number of things. I mean, I can tell you in the influenza world, you know, that one I do know a bit about. And we've had that fight for a decade with CDC and WHO about over transmission influenza virus is clearly major aerosol transmission. And there's a whole body of science that supports that by influenza researchers, but they just didn't believe it. Interesting. I mean, could it be that that the virus travels in different ways? Somebody actually asked me this recently. Well, do we know that it, it, it doesn't ever transmit on surfaces or could it sometimes? Do we really know what the percentage yeah. is? We can't say never. I mean, that's one of the things you learn about in our business. But if you look epidemiologically, you know, the data just aren't there that surfaces play a key role in transmission. Um, I can't say that it can't happen at all. But because the virus having to get into the respiratory tract, if it's on a surface, you know, that's more of a skin related type issue where you'd get that. Much like you'd see with regard to antibiotic resistant organisms in a hospital, you know, or Clostridium difficile in a hospital there you can it's it's a gi type thing you wouldn't look at this as a surface getting in deep into your lungs that's you got to breathe it in it's sort of i so just kind of hard to understand the motivation for people continuing to push on something without wanting to study it more without wanting to learn more I, tell me about it i it's 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 a challenge i mean and, but we see this in you know it's, this is way of life i mean you know you have your facts, I have my facts. Well, wait a minute, you can't have separate facts. The facts are the facts. Yeah. And so this this happens in science. I mean, it's it's not that it, unusual. It, it does. It's just, um, you know, it seems like there was still so much that needed to be learned, I guess. And that leads me to where you think we should be putting our emphasis um, in, you know, the coming months. Well, you know, I, first of all, I give the president in his State of the Union speech last night and the administration in general great credit for the fact that they uh, recognize the uncertainty of variants and what they could do, what mm -hmm. they could mean. And, you know, nobody wants to hear that right now. Everybody wants a clean bill of health and say, we're done, we're over. And, uh, you know, I think fortunately some people had to learn their lesson. And I say fortunately, because it was last spring, that variants do matter. You know, it was a year ago right now that I was pretty getting, I was getting pretty panned routinely for the fact that I, you know, was saying, I think the darkest days of the pandemic could still be ahead of us. Well, it was, it yeah. Was me about the variants. And well, you know, and Delta, I, wasn't Delta already in India? No, so, oh, it wasn't it just, yet. It, that was oh. before Delta even showed up. I had oh. Alpha, Beta, and Gamma. Oh. And then Delta showed up about a month, a month later. And then, 
and then of course Omicron. So I think people are now, I think where we're at is saying, we have to move forward. We still need to be prepared. Uh, you know, what can we do to improve vaccines? For example, we're gonna be announcing next week, so it's not out yet, uh, that uh, we're gonna be doing another roadmap project. We've done a series of roadmap for vaccines, um, including the big one, an influenza vaccine uh, that's on our website, involved all the world's experts in flu. Uh, we're doing a new one now for coronavirus, beta pan coronaviruses. And with the idea that, you know, what's gonna be 2.0, 3.0 and 4.0, we're going to need even better vaccines than we have in terms of durability, in terms of the breadth of protection. You know, can we cover different variants? And so I think that that work really is important. I think basically getting a system in place where people can quickly be tested, even during surge times, and then with those test results quickly available and highly reliable test results, you can get drugs, you can get treated. Right there. Right, right. So uh, that was which was Biden's one of Biden's testing. seems like important points testing yeah. and then getting antivirals right on the spot. Though yeah, I, I actually have had a problem with that though. Oh, I, okay. I've, act, I've actually been the one pushing back, oh, uh, okay. not very successfully, only because test and treat means you got to be able to test. And the only rapid test we have are these lateral flows. Go look at the New York Times yesterday, you know, the one new study just out 40 to 60% positives. When you're PCR positive, you'll be positive by one of these lateral flow tests. Well, that's a big diagnostic error. That's that's 40 to 60% of people will walk out of that pharmacy saying, well, I don't have COVID. Yes, and I think that that it seems like if you have, it's it, it, it that's another story I wanna write. And this will be, <laughs> this is gonna be an upcoming column, which is how CDC should give people better information about how to interpret test results and that means exactly it, you know. i think that's I, I i welcome i think that's important i mean if i knew and i think this has been a challenge is i'm a i'm a, a young man i'm gonna go see grandpa and grandma tonight it's grandma's birthday and grandma's got cancer and she you know she's being treated right now so i take my one test well if i told you you only knew 40 to 60 percent of the time whether it was really positive or not when it, you got a negative when it wasn't hell i just flip a coin yeah you know, and, and we don't see and part of it is we haven't really translated that and so i think rapid testing could be absolutely a game changer if it was accurate yeah so do you think <laughs> so we need better better tests it seems like they could still be yeah. certain well, just if everybody knew that you were you were reducing your risk of a, of an encounter and, of meeting, and, and if you do it over multiple it. days and know, take a couple tests, yeah, but it seems over like multiple, then that's right. But the yeah. problem is, it's the one. So the test and treat is a one-time test. That test to treat idea rests on treating with antiviral drugs, and the most promising of those is a Pfizer drug called Paxlovid. It's actually a series of pills that have proven to be really effective in fighting the virus in clinical trials, but they have to be started within five days of the onset of symptoms. And so that means that having accurate tests is extremely important. Yeah, so why, why, it seems like you would want a PCR test before you gave somebody Paxlovid and you'd wanna be able to get the PCR system going so you could get a result quickly. 
within 24 hours. Absolutely. You, you nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> That's okay. it. I agree. Yep, yes. You got yep, it. You yeah. Got and it. also Paxlovid has some side effects. It can affect your metabolism, other drugs. Absolutely. So it's not, it can. You can't and just... that's where we need better drugs. You know, yes. just like we need 2.0, 3.0 vaccines, we need 2.0, 3.0 on the drugs. But I mean, you and I remember back in the days of HIV early days, you know, that was a death sentence. It was. And, and now look at it. We know it's a manageable chronic disease for many people because of drugs. Right. So I think that we can do a lot yet, you know, vaccines being a foundational approach, but the drug, you know, rapid of uh, diagnostics and drugs could also be really huge. Yes. And so that, that gets to the question, are you worried that funding might start to dry up if people start to feel like the pandemic, uh, you know, it takes a backseat to things that are more interesting. You know what? I, I tell you, I wish I could say I did, because that would give me a better sense of people. I don't think so. I think people will keep getting pinged with variants. So yeah. I, you know, I also wondered whether there's there are any new clues as to why the disease goes in such steep waves and what drives yeah. them down. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because you know this has been, you know, I, I John Barry and I published a paper, Mark Lipsich, very early on on our website of what we call viewpoint on what how might this pandemic unfold because it's a coronavirus we never had one and we laid out this would have looked like it was a flu like oh i remember of, that with the picture yeah yeah, yeah 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 and so but we never really knew well now we know a lot more and what we know is we don't know <laughs> and what i mean by that is if you look i have never been able to figure out why we see these surges and these waves like we do and take for example delta um, if you look at Delta, as you talked about, it emerged in India, and then you look at Delta as it emerged in uh, the southern United States last summer, you saw this very rapid ascent. You saw it stay up there for two to three weeks, and then it started dropping quickly, and it came back down to baseline. Okay, that happened both in India and in the United States, okay? Then you have Delta, the UK style, where... In July, you're at 1,200 cases a day, goes up to 52,000 cases a day, comes back down to 27, 28,000 cases a day, then goes back up into the 30s and stays up there and stays up there. And yeah. what brought it down was Omicron. Well, guess what? That's what happened in the upper Midwest. We saw it happen in August, took off. If you look at Minnesota, Wisconsin, Northern Michigan, across to Ontario, into Vermont and Maine. And what brought it down from August was the December emergence of Omicron. We, Minnesota was the number one state for cases like seven or eight weeks this fall. We were a house on fire. We were at uh, Rhode Island, where I live, was also the number one state for a while. And, and you, you, like, were, you were, you were yeah. part of that whole thing. With, and But the whole point is, why, why just why? Delta alone? Yeah. You see these different patterns, you know. Yeah. Everybody said, "Well, New York has has got herd immunity. L.A. does," because nobody was getting it during the summer or the fall. Okay. Right. And then look what happened when Omicron showed up. What happened in New York and L.A.? Look at they, look at Hong Kong. I mean, Hong Kong today is a house on fire. Incredible. Yes. <laughs> Their death rates past ours. It is. So their death rate uh, is their overall death rate from the pandemic still much lower than ours, though. Yeah, well, it, it is, I'm just talking about right now. On right a now, it, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's going up though. It's going way up. And it, and and the point being though is, how did everything miss Hong Kong up till now? I don't say miss in the sense, you know, they surely had some cases, 
but I think they had 22 deaths in the first two years of the pandemic. You know, and now they're seeing them. You know, that's a day. That's not even. That's not even a whole day for them. How so could that kind of, be? How could they have have kept it at bay for so long? You know, Faye, there are days that I really think <laughs> I should send back my PhD documents to the University of Minnesota and say I don't deserve these. I don't know. I don't Nobody know. Nobody knows. But at least, well, that's what makes you a good scientist. You admit you don't know. And I, I really admired the way you handled the, some of those questions on the Joe Rogan show too, because I think I. You know, it's a service to go and you're reaching people who wouldn't normally listen yeah, to my well, thanks, podcast. Thanks. I'm referring here to a recent episode of the now infamous Joe Rogan podcast. Joe Rogan actually does have a lot of really good scientists as well as some questionable ones on his show. And he recently had Dr. Osterholm on the show and they talked about a lot of things, but for whatever reason, Joe Rogan kept interrogating Dr. Osterholm about whether the virus came from a lab leak or an animal in a wet market. And that really isn't his area of expertise, so he rightly said he didn't know, and he kept having to repeat this over and over. And I admire that. I think too many scientists have convinced themselves that they do know the answer. They know where the virus came from. That is on both sides of the debate. Although I got a fair amount of mail after that one, of which they all basically said, if you don't know anything, shut your goddamn mouth up. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what you did. That's exactly I know, what you I know, did. I know. I know. They told me to up. shut up. They he told me asked, to shut up because, <laughs> because I don't know anything. Yes, so he admit you didn't know it. And Rogan I, just wouldn't, wouldn't, he wouldn't shut up. He kept asking you over and over as if somehow yeah, he had Yeah, well, he, some of his audience thought I shouldn't be out there because I don't know anything. They but, also, you know, I think this issue you just raised on why the different epidemiology... I would love to know that. So it's it's fascinating. I mean, I guess that's why I hope we will will keep learning and that understanding it will give us more power. It seems like people talk about, you know, cases when the cases go down, people will use this language in the press. You know, this shows the progress we've made or it's under. Exactly. You, you so now we have no clue why they go up or why they come down. We it's don't not, know. Yes, it's not us. It's not us. We're overestimating. This is what. This is why I wish I one day if I could, if there was a God and there was a heaven or there was anything, I just want to understand this. I don't care about black holes. <laughs> I don't need to understand gravity. Yeah, I just, just want, I just want to understand what the hell is going on here. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is it is really the pandemic in some ways. Yeah, it is. It is full well, of this biological. Is, you know, I say this. I say this. In the, it is very humbling. You know, I, I've never encountered anything where the more I learn, the less I know. I mean, you know, it's 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 really remarkable. And I mean, but that's also then why you got to keep learning, because yeah. this thing keeps throwing things at us, you know. And, and, you know, I, I look long COVID, you know, I had studied chronic fatigue syndrome. I did several studies on that. I did chronic Lyme disease work, you know, never really coming to, and now I look at long COVID and I think, oh my God, there's so many similarities here about these, you know, immunologic dysfunctional responses. We may really learn fi finally, first and foremost, all the things we didn't know about these other conditions. Right. Are there trigger points? Are, are there certain, you know, mechanisms that cause this to happen? So anyway, so I, I, I wish I knew more. <laughs> I wish yeah. I knew more. Well, it does make me wonder whether, because no other infectious disease has been studied the way this has, whether in some ways yeah. we're seeing things, we just sort of like turning the Hubble telescope oh, on things. And, you know, I got to <laughs> tell you, we may have actually literally, uh, how should I say it? capture people's imaginations at least if you're a man today did you see the new data on the infection and uh you know there's a, a group that did a, a study looking at monkeys and it's now showing up in humans 
the fact that you can have primary infection in your penis and testes with this virus. Wow. And it may be a major cause of, of uh, sexual dysfunction in men after oh you've God. had a long COVID. With, and, wow. yeah, and, and it may actually lead to increased sterility. So for all those people that don't want to get vaccinated for all because, these reasons, right, they might well, for this one. You yeah, know? <laughs> well, that was one of the that was one of the uh, things that you know the disinformation people were saying what happened to you from the vaccine. Yeah, 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 yeah. So anyway, this is yeah, this is a new study. So. Wow, that's it. Really, it seems like the virus does go everywhere in your body. I mean, yeah, it's just so much. You know, why why now the difference between loss of taste and smell between Omicron and Delta? You know, we see yeah. many fewer with that, with Omicron. Right, right. And we don't know why. I mean, you know, what's the, what is the, you know, neurotropic aspects of the Omicron versus Delta? Don't know. There's so much we still don't know, and maybe people got the wrong impression early in the pandemic because public health does try to sound definitive and confident in order to be persuasive and get people to do things. And it just wouldn't motivate people the same way if they admitted that they really didn't know very much and weren't really sure if their mitigation strategies were going to work. But Dr. Osterholm is right that honesty is the best policy in the long run. And he suspected from the start that this virus was going to be a long-term problem. And really, scientists can't make progress if they can't recognize what's known and what's just assumed. It's only when we recognize what we don't know that we can start to encroach on our collective ignorance. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam. You can follow Faye on Twitter at Faye Flam. That is F-A-Y-E-F-L-A-M. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. If you liked today's episode, we'd really love it if you left us a positive rating and review wherever you listened. Thanks in advance, and we'll see you next week.